0: This episode of Film Jive is brought to you by Audible.com, the world's largest selection of premium audiobooks and spoken word content with over 150,000 titles to choose from. To sign up for your free 30-day trial, please visit audibletrial.com slash filmjive.
1: W-E-L-O-V-E 108. Know you got a soul hey, listen if you're missing y'all swinging while i'm singing hey. giving what you're getting knowing what i'm knowing while the black band sweating in the river i'm rolling gotta give us what we want uh. gotta give us what we need hey. <laughs> our freedom of speech is freedom of death we got to fight the power that be fight the power fight the power fight the power, fight the power. Power. Got to fight
0: the that Hello and welcome to the Film Jive Podcast. We are recording this episode on August 10th, 2014. My name is Sweet Dick Zach. And I'm
1: Andy. <laughs> iPod Andy.
0: Okay. This is episode number <laughs> 76, where we are discussing and celebrating the 25th anniversary of Spike Lee's 1989 film, Do the Right Thing, released by Universal Pictures. I know at the end of last episode we stated that we would be reviewing Safe by Todd Haynes, which we're still planning to do, but that will be for episode 77. So I apologize to anyone that was really anticipating Safe and got Do the Right Thing instead.
1: You know those people will be saying? Man, they did not do the right thing. No, they won't. That's called a bait and switch.
0: Gotcha! (laughs) Anyway... Andy, would you please read the plot synopsis?
1: Okay. It's the hottest day of the summer in the Bed-Stuy neighborhood of Brooklyn, New York. Three businesses dominate the block. A storefront radio station where smooth-talking DJ known as Mr. Senior Love Daddy spins the platters that matter, a convenience store owned by a Korean couple, and Sal's Famous Pizzeria, the only white-operated business in the neighborhood. Sir Sal, Jesus Christ, <laughs> say Sir Sal, <laughs> Sal serves up slices with his two sons, the genial Vito and the angry racist Pino, while fellow African-American employee Mookie delivers pizzas to the citizens of the Bed-Stuy block. When fellow restaurant patron Buggin Out knows, notes that Sal's Wall of Fame, a photo gallery of famous Italian-Americans, includes no people of color, he eventually demands a neighborhood boycott on a day when tensions are already running high that incurs consequences so zach i know you really love do the right thing so uh why don't you tell me like what do you love about the film well how about tell me your whole history with do the right thing that's what i want to know when did you first see it and what did it how did it touch you the first time you saw it
0: yeah so we just before i get to that fury of questions we should mention okay. that you this was your first time seeing the movie right
1: yeah, this was my this was my first time saying it.
0: We popped your do the right thing cherry. Yeah, you could say that, I guess. <laughs> and I think I've this was probably my fifth or sixth viewing
1: in one day. Uh, in in one day, <laughs> You can right. watch it like a marathon. I could
0: probably do that. I I know that this summer the movie has been on the IFC channel quite a bit, and I've caught bits and pieces of it here and there and that was kind of what prompted me to decide to think oh well this is the 25th anniversary maybe we should should do do the right
1: thing and do the right thing yeah Yeah.
0: i don't like talking about films the importance of a film but it is kind of a important american film at least that was Mm -hmm. in the last 25 years um my history would do the right thing well i should say i really like spike lee quite a bit he's one of my favorite directors um i love his tenacity and the passion that is exhibited in his his work and do the right thing is certainly one of my favorite films of his, if not my favorite film of his um I also really like Malcolm X and he got game and his uh Katrina documentaries. I just love the guy; his work's just stellar. You guys should really check it out um I saw this film probably let's see how maybe 10 years ago for the first time. And all all I really remember, I would have been probably, uh, I would have been 13, I think. And I'm not sure that at least the social and, you know, political subtext of the movie was something that I was attuned to. But I do remember the ending having a tremendous emotional impact on me, just kind of the eruption of everything in the last half hour was really jarring. And I will say that it is one of the rare moments in a movie where you could watch, I could watch this film, you know, over and over again. And I still think the ending sustains its, its emotion. Every time you view it, it is just as powerful as the first time because you get, you kind of get lost in the world of the film and then you just kind of get smacked in the face with something, even when you know it's coming. The, one of the reasons why I really love it is, given the subject matter, I think there's a certain expectation that you would have in terms of how this film would visually be presented. Most movies that tackle subjects of, you know, racism in America and race relations, uh, I think they'd be striving for sort of a heavy, uh, a grittier realism. But what makes do the right thing so singular is how surreal it is i mean it is truly a strange movie um maybe it doesn't feel as strange to some people now because i think it's influenced a lot of films and a lot of filmmakers it definitely had an impact on sort of like the music video culture of of the 90s but for something that is so sort of finite and restricted to such a small sort of location of this block the vibrant colors, the epic compositions, and the camera movement, all kind of contained within this very hyper realistic uh, urban landscape
1: also like the the breaking of the fourth wall throughout the film, yeah. the uh, kind of like the unconventional shots that he has. Um, you very rarely have shots in films where the character is direct, is directly centered, speaking directly to the camera.
0: Well, everything gives it a. I mean, it's almost like watching a, a fable or a fairy tale. Um, like a modern fairy tale. Yeah, I agree. It's, it's more something.
1: like yeah, it's more like a. Um, I don't know if I would say fairy tale, but more like like an Aesop's fable, where mm-hmm. the uh, the moral isn't as is, uh in your face. Essentially, it is uh more uh up to you to decide. I suppose.
0: Yeah, and I. It, I mean, it is, and it's an aggressive film, but I actually think, like you just said, it's more aggressive, visually. Than it is, I guess, politically.
1: I think it's. The, I think people view it as aggressive because, like we kind of talked about before we went before we started recording, is that it doesn't answer any. You mean you you after it's over? I still am not one hundred percent for certain how Spike Lee felt about what happened in the film. Like I don't know who he sided on if he sided with anyone because, as we both kind of said, everyone there's everyone is to blame in some regard, and I think. Films like that, I think, that upsets a lot of viewers, where it's not like tidy and neat and presented to you with all the answers and no questions. You know, I think that's uh, I think that can bother a lot of people.
0: Oh well, I I think it did. I mean, well, I, I don't know that I want to get right to the ending, but there are certain things that certain characters do that I think have people have a hard time accepting because they've become so attached to those characters.
1: No, are you talking about the Mookie character?
0: Yeah, I I would say. I would even say that to be true about Sal, for instance. Um mm-hmm. I, I think what Spike Lee does really well is it's a movie that it has an incredibly large cast.
1: Yeah.
0: And it doesn't limit the film's perspective to a single character. Which which in no, by no. most filmmakers they would probably this movie would be all from Mookie's point of view. And because it doesn't do that, you are really able to invest in everyone on the block and ingest all of these very specific character details. I mean, it's, Mm -hmm. it treats everybody, even characters that are dislikable, I think, with a certain level of affection. It doesn't necessarily paint them in a positive light, but it strives to understand where that character is coming from. Well, I think,
1: like, the Pino character definitely mm-hmm. is like
0: that. I mean, that scene where Spike uh, Mookie takes him to a side and they're talking about, you know, who's your favorite basketball player? Who's your favorite actor?
1: Yeah. Well, I thought that was probably one of the most, I want to say, um, probably most, like, <laughs> I'm trying to think of how I want to say this. Well, it's a,
0: it's a, he does something similar in Inside Man. It's much yeah. more subtle that involves a, a, a white man's ringtone. It's it's how certain white people perceive, I guess, black culture.
1: Yeah, no, I, yeah, because to me, in, in a way, that scene was the most, um, I don't want to say honest, but the one that I can see, like, could touch certain people, mm-hmm. like, to understand, go, okay, I can, I, I'm i like Pino, well, I'm not like Pino, but what I'm saying, like, a person's like Pino, and then have the scene transpire and begin to see, like, the fallacy of their argument. I really think that's the only scene where he really is like that, where he is kind of saying, like, this is how you feel, but it doesn't really make sense how you feel this way. Because I think throughout the film, other than that, it is kind of very much in the air.
0: For me, race does not exist.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's a social construct that I believe that was created by something, and I i mean, it was it was invented by religion.
0: Religion is in itself a social construct, absolutely.
1: Yeah, so I mean, it's, it created the concept of us versus them.
0: Now, I, I just, I guess, what were your initial thoughts on the movie? You know, did you like it or did you despise it? What? I mean,
1: no, I like, I, I liked it, and um, I liked it more as a piece that makes me think and I think it's something that um, you can watch over and over. I think there are a lot of films that you that a person can really like and really grabs them, but you can only really watch it once. This is something that. I think you can watch numerous times and you always get something different out of. And like I was telling you before we started recording, I watched this before I went to bed, but I thought about it all night. Mm -hmm. And and I do think that's what he wanted to do. So he was able to accomplish what he wanted in that regard.
0: Well, even like the closing image of Martin Luther King and Malcolm X and the two quotes that follow the film, it's an ending that isn't providing an answer. I mean, because you can't provide an answer to this. It's almost like... This is where, it's almost like the beginning of the movie. It's like, okay, this is where the -hmm. conversation starts, is with the end of this, really. After you've ingested everything you've just watched, these two quotes, that image, now talk about it.
1: And I was really taken by how he does present both quotations, from, which I think is important in that um, I don't know how Spike Lee feels about what just transpired. Because i I know from from my viewing of it that I'm a very unviolent person, so like Martin Luther King's kind of ideology is something that I kind of that I more agree with, but I've never had to live their lives mm-hmm. of the people in this neighborhood so i can't I've never had to experience what they've experienced, so I can't necessarily say I can't like damn them for what happened at the end. Because i I've never been in that situation. I'll never be in that situation, so I can't really judge them in that regard. To me, you were when you were talking about the ending. Really, the scene that kind of stuck out to me the most is is even after, kind of the uh, the burning of Sal's pizzeria, when Sal and Mookie have their talk the next morning.
0: Yeah, which is both great and hilarious.
1: But what I like is that it starts off kind of confrontational, but it does end with.
0: How you feeling? You sick? I'm feeling yeah, all right.
1: Reconcilia- a reconciliation between the two of them, right? And I think that was important for him to have.
0: Well, I guess originally in his original draft,
1: it was even they were they were going to reconcile even further,
0: right? And he chose to make it a little more ambiguous. I mean, I still think it's pretty, pretty
1: it, obvious from right the way that they were talking to each other. But I think it's actually more masterfully
0: Mookie, done by yeah, being the less Mookie, blunt.
1: Yeah, yeah, the way that Mookie accepts the rest of the money that sal gave him right and so i do i like i said i i think that was a very important part and the mookie's actions to me that kind of start i mean i don't want to say that he started the burning of the pizzeria but it was kind of him throwing spoiler alert (laughs) he throws the garbage can through sal's window i have read like since i've seen the film last night i've read some things where the um kind of people don't agree why he did it Uh What
0: were their arguments?
1: Okay, well, one argument is that he was angry about what happened to Radio Rahim, and the other argument is that he noticed that the whole neighborhood was yelling at Sal, and that by throwing the garbage can through the window, it deflected their anger at Sal, from... It directed their anger from being at Sal to Sal's pizza, pizzeria. And thus he saved Sal from whatever could have happened.
0: This group of people is angry over what just happened and they're going to have to release this tension onto somebody and who they've clearly decided who is at fault for this. Um, But what are people saying? They don't agree with him doing it. What are the, why are they saying they don't agree with
1: it? Well, from a lot of what I've, you read people both say, like not necessarily agree with what he did, but understand why he did. And some that don't understand what he did. I, you know, the people that don't understand what he did was that what happened to Radio Rahim wasn't really Sal's fault. I mean, the police were the one that killed him. Sal just happened to be a white guy that was the only other white guy that was there. Mm-hmm. So it's what happened to Sal was unfair. Well, Since <laughs> he really had nothing to do with it. Other than it kind of started at Sal's, but he didn't kill Radio Rahim.
0: No. it's It's a tough thing to, you know... I guess talk about and also give like a, a clear answer to, but I mean, I've read things where it's come across as if there are reviews that you will read. And i I'm pretty sure Spike Lee has talked about this before where no one actually will mention the death of radio. Our and right, all right. they will talk about is the pizza shop being burned down.
1: Right. And it's yeah. this
0: idea that property it's is more important, important than, than a human life. Yeah. And even ignoring that, Apply that same philosophy, then, to they're either going to kill Sal or they're going to burn down his pizza shop. Mm-hmm. It's still life or property, I mean, mm-hmm. even if you remove the sort of racial elements of it. So, I mean, I don't know. I,
1: yeah, but if you look at it in the garden that Mookie was doing this either to... Because it was either going to happen to Sal or Sal's pizza shop, Mookie put the value in Sal's life rather than his property.
0: Right, and he even says at the end of the film to Sal that you're going to collect on the insurance anyway. Yeah, you're going to collect on the insurance anyway. And from what Spike Lee... um, I haven't seen Red Hook Summer, but Mookie makes an appearance in Red Hook Summer. Mm -hmm. Uh, Apparently, you know, in the life beyond the film, Sal collects on his insurance and moves his pizza place to like Greenwich Village or something like that. And Mm -hmm. Mookie ends up working for him there or something. So there's some you know, there's a continuation beyond what the movie is. But
1: Well I think like I think those like questions though, and I think the fact that Sal isn't a bad guy is important. Like I think those things are important. He's not a bad
0: guy, but he he's definitely I don't know that he's a great guy either. I mean... Yeah, but nobody's
1: a great guy.
0: No, but I'm saying they're... What's interesting about Sal and his his two sons is his two sons are kind of extreme versions of of both his personality, if you understand what I mean. Like, mm-hmm. Vito is a very, like, sort of accepting person. Yeah. At least he comes across as that. And Pino is is not at all. And Sal is a bit more... He he's, seems generally accepting, but then as soon as his authority is put into question, he becomes a very sort of aggressively violent person. Oh, yeah, he
1: has an, yeah, he has an aggressive, violent streak to him,
0: yeah. And, and that's the thing about, what's interesting, I guess, about the the scene in the pizzeria at the end is that all three of those characters uh, bugging out Radio Raheem, smiley, first of all, they are... They're clearly drawn as definitive outcasts from the rest of the neighborhood of the neighborhood, yeah, but also they have been irritated by Sal or whatever, or Sal or in the case of Smiley Pino's Pino yeah. at some point during the film, and so there is the there seems to be i mean again, I don't think what's good about the movie is it doesn't I don't think it places judgment on anything that anybody does
1: no, because I mean Sal could have easily is instead of getting so angry with them when they showed up at the end, he could have as strange as may sound, he is the adult in these situation, he should have been able to find a better way than just kind of doing what they were doing.
0: Absolutely. And there is there is an e uh, there there is a moment also where when bugging out first kind of when he gets Radio Rahim riled up to go to Sal's, Radio Rahim says something about him just saying, Please turn the music down. Mm hmm. So there, for Sal, there is this sense that, you know, you have these scenes where he's talking about these people have been raised on my food and everything like that. And I'm proud of that. And, you know, he's giving money to the mayor and, and things like that. But then you also have these scenes where he's got this I'm the man attitude.
1: What do you think of um, Sal's relationship with Mookie's sister?
0: <laughs> it's... Spike Lee has criticized interracial relationships mm-hmm. in other films. I think
1: I, I think their affections were mutual. I think Oh, you think she liked jo- Sal Jody? as well? Was, was yeah, uh, Jade. Jade, or,
0: Jade. Jade.
1: I think yeah, I mean the way she was with him, I thought that they it was reciprocal. I mean I mean that's entirely possible. Or at the, or at the very least she thought he was a very, like, sweet guy to her.
0: And and her character spends a lot of time telling Mookie to get a job and get a life and things like that. And I guess, to some extent, Sal is a settled, somewhat successful person at what he does. Well, there
1: was also the scene when um, Mookie goes home, when he's working, when he goes home to take a shower, and she's talking about Sal, and he says, I think you care more about Sal than me. Mm-hmm. But I, But
0: I think some of what Spike Lee has argued in interracial relationships previous is that a lot of times on the part of both parties it's it's more of a a curiosity it's not a yeah. there's not a, a genuine interest you know it's mm-hmm. it's for the wrong reasons basically yeah and i don't i don't know if that's what he's suggesting there exactly but um yeah I don't know
1: but i i thought um I liked how both Pino and Mookie had a problem yeah with, oh with it because Mookie and Pino are actually pretty similar in certain regards, except Mookie isn't nearly as angry as Pino. No,
0: they don't like each other, and they don't. Yeah,
1: well, I mean, well, Pino and Bugging Out are very similar. Mm-hmm. They both have very strong angry streak, and they're also very suspicious of, you know, the other, whatever the other may be. Mm-hmm. Because Bugging Out didn't like Vito either, and Mookie tried to get Vito tried to get Bugging Out to like Vito. So I do think they're very similar, Pino and Bugging Out, in a way. And that's one of the things I did find very interesting about this film is that, um, and I think a lot of people that wouldn't have never seen have never seen the film and have like a certain idea of what they think Spike Lee is, which most I people think,
0: was, think Spike Lee is a racist. That I mean, was well, a militant. Yeah, yeah.
1: yeah, I think they would be surprised that, like, I don't think he necessarily paints Buggin Out in the best light. In um, I think that I would mean Buggin me.
0: Out has nice character moments in, yeah, interspersed yeah. between his sort of outrage i guess one of the scenes where i feel like he thinks but i think he depicts bugging out as being a bit of an extremist is the the uh sneaker scene yeah yeah and what's interesting about that is spike lee is very Mm anti-gentrification but there also is a i think a sympathy for that uh i think it's i can't i think it's mark savage is the actor's name Mm -hmm. um there is a sympathy There's, for it, that.
1: It's, I think it's Johnson. Oh,
0: okay. There is a sympathy for that character in that, you know, it's kind of like, it's just a scuffed tennis shoe, man. Like, what's the...
1: And it was purely a, an accident. Right. right.
0: And then the pay... I love the payoff of that scene with the, you know, why don't you go back to Massachusetts? And I am I was born in Brooklyn and everyone's just, oh! I mean, that's just an example of... We talked a little bit about this before we got started, just despite all of its kind of aggressive aggressiveness and uh the tensions that mount throughout the day there is this v- kind of warmth and community ab- and the about film it. is
1: funny oh it's i mean there hilarious. are a lot of very funny yeah there are a lot of very funny moments i mean all of the characters are funny have funny things to say well
0: anytime aussie davis and ruby d are kind of going at it i just adore those scenes and i think they're oh, yeah. a lot of fun and
1: this the scene where the martin lawrence and the three other younger people kind of i don't want to say they harassed ossie davis the mayor character mm-hmm. but we're kind of like making fun of him and he kind of had his little like the one says his solilo 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 eh. solo solilo- <laughs> we can even say it soliloquy yes that scene, and then there were a couple other scenes, especially with the, the, the three the three men sitting across the street from the Korean fruit shop, and we think that the film has just much to do with generational differences than it does even, like, racial differences.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I do see how those four characters, and the mother-sister character, how they kind of viewed certain things is very different than how a lot of the younger, younger people of the neighborhood viewed things. So, I wish I would have made notes of what i wanted to
0: throw throw with that absolutely i mean you see it you see it in sal's pizza shop the mm-hmm. disconnect between him and his sons you see it ruby d Ossie davis uh the corner men like you were saying they i think they they have a certain perspective on what they think the neighborhood i guess should be or what it was mm-hmm. and what it is now and um There is kind of this duality to everybody in the movie, where they where they are at a certain point, where they end up, and it's interesting because he seems to be between the the kids and Ruby Dee's character. He is, and even sort of how Mookie interacts with him. There's this sense that no one respects him because he's a he's a drunk. Mm -hmm. And then by the end of the film, I mean, he after he's saved that little boy, he's essentially had a hand in saving Sal's life probably as well. I mean, he comes through as the wisest, most perceptive, protective member of the neighborhood. Mm -hmm. I mean, you have a tremendous amount of respect for him. I mean, I always like the character because Spike Lee's, like, the camera is very affectionate towards him. And his, Mm -hmm. I mean, it's Ozzie Davis. Like, I don't know how you could not like Ozzie Davis, (laughs) but, you know, there's just something... That kind of exists that way, I think, for a lot of characters. I mean, you we were talking about earlier, there's who Sal is at the beginning and who kind of Sal ends up as at a certain point is different. And um, I don't know. It's just there's something about it being such a big ensemble and so many characters being so likable and just full of this incredible detail that seems so rare I think
1: um
0: and and the other thing that's great about the single location is the fact that it's also one of those things that you're on this one block so characters are almost always in the frame you're always Mm -hmm. aware of where where everyone everyone is located because you can see them somewhere in the background I mean that one that is like one of my favorite things is when Spike Lee is in like a wide frame there's always characters doing something kind of amusing in the background. One of my favorite bits is when Vito and Mookie go to deliver the sandwich to Senior Love Daddy, Sam Jackson's character. And they're out front talking and Sam Jackson is in the window pantomiming oh, yeah. the sandwich for yeah. like the whole scene. It just creates this, I don't know, dynamic that is really, um, I think, unusual for a movie of this sort of subject matter. I would say it's unusual for most movies in general, uh, not just like a socially charged drama or something like that. But it's just, uh, I don't know. I I just love the kind of insistent energy and the the constant layering of of images in the film where there's always more happening in a frame than you're even aware of.
1: Yeah.
0: And that's why I think another reason why it's so it's so much fun. Yeah. Fun, fun is the right word. It is a fun movie to watch. Uh...
1: Yeah. Um, one of the things that you pointed out was everything that kind of like Spike Lee put into the film, like visually. Mm-hmm. And it is like an incredibly impressive film to watch visually. And I know when I was watching it, I was thinking I, the movie costs $6 million, but every bit of that $6 million is up there. I mean, I think it looks like a inexpensive movie. And, um, I think that's kind of impressive that he was able to make a film look this good on a relatively low budget like that. Um, And visually, he does put everything into it. And in a way, Martin Scorsese said about Raging Bull that he thought Raging Bull was going to be the last movie he ever directed, so he put everything that he always wanted to do in a film into it. In the regard, I don't know if Spike Lee thought this would have been his last movie, but do you think? that kind of idea of everything I want to do visually in a Mm. film I'm going to throw into this film.
0: Well, he doesn't do is he doesn't do his double dolly shot at any (laughs) point in this. And he does do that in school days. Well, he does kind of a double, Mm. but to me, whenever I watch it, I, you like, you're watching somebody make a movie that is very film literate.
1: Well, I mean, he's got like callbacks to like, bye bye. I mean, the opening credits is bye bye birdie. So, I mean, that easy making references to that.
0: I mean it it kind of to me a lot of it is re- very reminiscent of West Side Story. Yeah, I can see that, yeah. It remind like the way it uses color reminds me of the the Paul Pressburger films, like The Red Shoes and things like that. Yeah. Completely different film, but similar in certain ways, 12 Angry Men. The use of the single location, how heat is affecting mm-hmm. character emotions. I mean, the, yeah. the obvious one is The Night of the Hunter. But not just because of the speech that Ray Rahim makes. I think the Night of the Hunter is a movie where there are a lot of images that they just existed. Like they just came out of nowhere. Like it's, they're so kind of surreal and unconventional for a film of its nature that you can't imagine that anybody fabricated that. It's just like it was born out of somebody's brain or something. Uh, just, but there's a theatricality to it. Like, um, and then he also talks about how the heat heat of the night was a big influence in terms of conveying this sense of of heat and the constant sweating of of the characters. Mm-hmm. But I never thought of it as him kind of throwing everything in, but I suppose that that's probably true to a certain extent. I mean, School Days is in the film he made previous to this, it has a lot of the same Flare that this does it's not nearly as i would say it's not nearly as consistent as it is in doing the right thing it hap- comes and goes i mean he's always kind of experimented with theatrical lighting where he'll shoot entire scenes you know that are lit with blue gels or you know he'll really intensify the color of a sunlight or something for a dramatic effect so he's always i mean that's the thing about spike lee to me is he's always been sort of of experimental in trying to do different things like getting kind of talking about the the night of the hunter thing and the the reference with radio rahim's love hate speech the other thing that is crazy about that moment is we are following mookie through the street and then in the same shot the camera just drifts into breaking the fourth wall and then back drifts back out of it and to me that's insane in that I don't know that I've ever seen another movie do that i've seen it where there'll be a cut but where it will happen in the same shot where this whole thing will take place will be going along in the, the the normal boundaries of a film then we're going to break that fourth wall and then return back to where we were before that is so bizarre to me i just i don't know i mean it it's kind of a bertold brecht sort of philosophy that he's almost like trying to, like, with Brecht, he would, like, try to, he was always making the audience aware of the fact that you're watching a play. It's almost like Spike Lee is trying to make you aware that you're watching a film. And he does it at other points with, like, the, the fourth wall montage with everybody making, you know, racial slurs and things like that.
1: I think it's up. Uh, this is, like, something I'm just saying because I don't quite remember. When he does that kind of montage of people talking directly to the camera about, using things like, you know, like, the uh, derogatory remark montage. Mm-hmm. When he goes to Mookie, Mookie's standing in the street, right? Yeah. Now, he does kind of like a like like kind of like a pan up the street and then up to Mookie, right? Um, or is it just cut straight to Mookie? Yeah, I don't... I, I, I f- want to say that the camera moves into him, like, goes down the like, looks at the street, moves down, and then moves up to him. Maybe. Because if that is, that is from... um. I want to say Lorna, the Russ Meyer movie. That's how that movie begins. Oh, okay. With the characters stop talking in the middle of the street.
0: I know that like that montage comes very abruptly.
1: Oh, to like yeah, it's, like a great scene. Mm-hmm.
0: But it would be interesting to watch Raging Bull and this film together. I think. Mm-hmm. I mean, Spike Lee has gone on to since like I don't know that his his films are this. Uh, like, this kind of acts as, like, a film collage in a way, like, in all of the mm-hmm. different styles and techniques that he's applying. I think he gets a bit more, I don't want to say specific or simplified. He's still experimental, but he eventually kind of created his own techniques, like a, the double dolly.
1: Are his current films as energetic as this one is? Um, like There's, like, an energy and vibrancy throughout this entire movie. In that regard, it is very much like a Scorsese film. In that regard, and yeah, in just the, like kind of like the balls to the wall intensity from the very beginning, everything is just moving really fast. You know,
0: and it's a it's a very New York film. You know, like yeah,
1: it's, uh I
0: haven't seen his last two films, Red mm-hmm. Hook Summer, and I I didn't see old. I haven't old watched Boy. Old Boy. Beyond like the first half hours, I have I want to get back to it and watch it from the start all over again. But at least in the first half hour, I didn't dislike what I saw, but I wasn't enthused about it. But there were still mm. moments of of Spike Lee touches, and I'm aware of that. There is a, a, a supposedly a incredible one take fight sequence in
1: Old Boy. Well, from what I understand, his Old Boy remake was kind of taken out of his hands. Yeah. And I think I even, like, some of the actors, I even think Judge Roland said the film that's out isn't really Spike Lee's film. The film that currently out is an hour and 45 minutes. His original cut was two hours and 20 minutes.
0: I would say, though, even when he's, like, a film like Inside Man, for example, mm-hmm. to me is still, he's still kind of, like, an old boy. He's a jobber, essentially. Like, he's, it's not necessarily a movie he's that passionate about. Yeah. He didn't write it himself he's able to still inject his own style of filmmaking and find places where he can sort of do what he does. And in the case of Inside Man, I love Inside Man. I think it's a great mm-hmm. sort of like genre exercise and it's got an incredible score. Um,
1: I, will say, I will say for a director of his stature that um, in regard to something like Inside Man, that it doesn't seem like he's given the opportunity when he is kind of doing a job for hire. Mm-hmm isn't given the opportunity to make it a full-blown spikely joint. Whereas, um, again, I keep going to Martin Scorsese, but they are kind of similar directors. I know they respect each other a great deal. Um, There are Martin Scorsese films that are essentially work for hire for him. Wolf of Wall Street is kind of a work work for hire thing for him. It was something that Leonardo DiCaprio wanted to do. But that's still a full-fledged Martin Scorsese movie. Because he's given that, like, luxury of doing that. And I don't think Spike Lee is given the luxury of doing that. And that's kind of odd for someone, I think, like I said, of given up his stature.
0: Yeah, and I don't know if it's because he hasn't been as sort of, like, financially successful as some of Martin Scorsese's films have been. or
1: Which I guess is possible, but I guess my feeling is if you're hiring someone like Spike Lee to direct a movie, you're kind of doing it for a reason, I would think. Mm-hmm. You're kind of doing it because, oh... He makes good movies. Let's let him do his thing.
0: <laughs> right. For me, do the I, I love do the right thing, but it is kind of a it's a difficult movie to sort of compartmentalize in a conversation because it's got it has so yeah. much going on in itself that it's hard to try to unless you're going to go from point A to point Z.
1: It's mm-hmm. hard. Well, and I think like another thing with something like do the right thing, at least for me, at least is um is that kind of said earlier i'm not an expert on race relations i've never had to like deal with it head on i don't necessarily believe i'm the best person to talk or even understand everything that happened and do the right thing right
0: but i think just as like uh from a visual storytelling perspective like
1: i think that yeah i can do that
0: yeah and that's quite easy and i think unfair unfortunately that is something that gets neglected a lot of times is they don't talk about the craftsmanship of a movie like this and how how interesting it is. It's just I, I don't know that there's any other film that's really like this.
1: I never and what's funny is when your mention of Night of the Hunter I never once thought of Night of the Hunt. even though he has love and hate on his hands. Oh really? It never dawned on me.
0: Well I suppose that's kind of a great thing then.
1: Well once he said it I was like he's got shit he's got it written on his hands <laughs> right. just like and even like earlier, we kind of said the film has kind of like a like a like a fairy tale, Aesop's tale kind of bent to it. And I think Night of the Hunter has a fairy tale oh, yeah. feel to it as well. Isn't um, just, this?
0: Isn't Night of the Hunter like the greatest? <laughs> like it's such a good movie. Like I, well, so
1: it's crazy that it's the only film that Charles Lawton directed.
0: <laughs> every time I watch that movie, I just can't believe how good it is. Like it just yeah. blows my mind. But. Yeah, I mean, people wrongly state that uh, Rayo Rahim's speech is verba- verbatim what Robert Mitchum said, and it's not at yeah. all. It's completely. Reny. I've no,
1: Yeah, I never. It never even dawned on me. I've, it's So weird. I was like, it's right there.
0: But it, you know, it's just great how he transfers it to like brass knuckles, and it's just yeah. a complete reinvention of something that. Oh
1: yeah, I know totally. Once he said it, before we recorded, we kind of talked about how this movie couldn't happen today.
0: Oh, like no way! One
1: thing, uh, Radio Rahim would be iPod Rahim, and wouldn't be bothering anybody when he's with his music. Well, I also don't believe that there would be a Sal's Pizzeria still open in that neighborhood. I believe there would probably be like a, a like a Pizza Hut carry out or something like that instead.
0: Well, that yeah, that whole neighborhood's been gentrified, from what I know. Yeah. Which is a big thing that if you go look for Spike Lee on YouTube, you will hear him talking about gentrification and. Yeah from what spike lee says it makes a lot of sense to me but i never lived in brooklyn i've never lived in a neighborhood that's been gentrified so i i'm not really the person that should be probably talking about it
1: yeah i have not i'm i've never been in this those situations either but i've always been kind of against gentrification yeah and uh mainly because you know my man michael j wilden has always been against it <laughs>
0: Well and and Spike Lee's argument, and I think this comes there are elements of, you know, uh, maintaining sort of neighborhood culture in this film. His argument has always been that when people come in to gentrify neighborhoods, they kind of disregard the people that have been there before or the culture Mm -hmm. that's already existed there and they don't respect Mm -hmm. it. A lot of times people move into these neighborhoods and then suddenly there's constant police protection there. There's People are picking up trash every day, and he his argument is he doesn't understand why wealthy white people have to move into a neighborhood for things to get better. Well,
1: it's also killing, it's killing culture, too. That's more than anything. For me, that's what it's doing. It's killing the culture of all these things. Everything's becoming homogenized. Everything's becoming exactly the same. Mm-hmm. At one time, every neighborhood, every city wasn't exactly the same, but that's what we're getting to, where everything is just a carbon copy of everything else, and... That's when everything's the same, you kind of lose fun and excitement and the concept of home even means nothing, because if every place is exactly the same, then what makes your place, what makes your home special anymore?
0: Well, that's even why the um, Radio Rahim and his radio, I could see how it's annoying (laughs) to people, you know? I I can see it, but I also Mm -hmm. understand that it is a it's his form of self-expression.
1: It's a part of that neighborhood. Even if nobody else in the neighborhood... Because it should be noted that Sal's not the only one that thinks it's annoying. Right. Pretty much everybody thinks it's annoying. But it is still a part of that neighborhood.
0: Yeah, and and something that uh, Spike Lee does throughout the movie is... A lot of times his camera will be kind of drifting in and out of... Like an interior space into an exterior space or vice versa... And to me, that was always that he's communicating this sense of commu- like unity amongst everybody; they're not separated. And then when you get to the pizzeria scene, everything is cuts, and everyone's isolated yeah. in a frame.
1: Oh, and then yeah, they become much tighter. Yeah, yeah. like, well, like Martin Lewins. Lawrence, Martin Lawrence's um, group. I mean, there's like four people, and they're just jammed into this tiny booth, and like the, the shot is I mean they are just like on top of each other how tight it is with them screaming at the when the fight begins
0: but then he cuts back to that shot later and it's just the girl in the booth Crying. and it's and they're all, all the the three of them are gone and yeah, that scene itself he kind of through his editing and his shot selection he breaks that room up into like very defined spatial yeah areas and it's just really well done but one of the things he does with Radio Rahim is there is the scene where I don't the Latinos are playing their radio and he oh, comes yeah, the, over. The
1: oh, radio, yeah, the radio battle. Right.
0: Their whole radio ba- battle is still in one take and the camera drifts yeah. back and forth. And still there's this sense that it's not completely anti- antagonistic on either part. It's – there's still it, something connecting these people together.
1: Yeah. Well, there was like huh, the the, the... – uh latino radio the latino version of radio Rahim seemed to have a like a respect for radio Rahim and their radio <laughs> he's like all and right like, all right man you you got me <laughs> yeah there it was like some sort of weird like uh almost like old west duel kind of <laughs> with it and uh it was it was a very funny scene mm-hmm. but it was also like i like that like there was a sense of respect because I think even like how the the Hispanic Latino, uh, like turns out his radio and kind of like, nah, it's like, yeah, you got me kind of thing. I mean, it's and Radio Rahim just walks off, he turns around and walks the other way, but I mean, it's very a very funny scene.
0: Spike Lee uh, should have made like a man with no name western where it was like radio duels instead of <laughs> gunfights, yeah. And Radio Rahim should have been the star of it.
1: You're Bill
0: Nunn, because he is he is like in that moment he's like Clint Eastwood riding off yeah. into the sunset.
1: Yeah, I mean, yeah, I agree. Oh, I know he was Joseph Robbie Robertson in the Spider-Man trilogy. Mm-hmm. I'll be what
0: did you uh, let's let's talk about the use of music um, mm-hmm. and the the kind of incessant use of "Fight the Power." I guess. What did you think of that, or, or even like, what did you think of the film's actual score?
1: You, to be honest with you, the the actual score, I don't really remember much of it. Oh, okay. I'll have to be I mean, it was very jazzy.
0: Yeah, it's very airy and
1: yeah. And I suppose that works for the idea of a hot summer's day. I think it was very natural for it. Maybe that's why it doesn't really, why it's not like it stood out to me all that much. is because I did find it relatively natural to the atmosphere that was being created throughout the film.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You're right. There is like an. Ins- just a crazy amount of fight the power throughout the film. I think
0: Spike Lee says that it appears like 15 times or something like that. Yeah, but
1: it never really seems to wear out its welcome. I think the song's like exciting enough.
0: Oh yeah, it's a great song.
1: Yeah, to where it's never like the song again, where I think with some movies that incessantly play the same song over and over again, that can happen. And and it's even like kind of brought up in the film with the one character asking Radio Rahim why he always listens to that one song. (laughs) Don't you have another tape? Yeah, so in a way, I think it works because Radio Raheem with his radio is so so universal throughout this neighborhood that I think you should hear that song nonstop because the people in the neighborhood probably hear that song nonstop.
0: Yeah, and it's also like uh, it becomes like a great way to like you don't have to see him enter a scene to know mm-hmm. that he's there. To know yeah. he's coming. Like yeah. that's what makes the the arrival at the end so kind of like impactful is that you hear the music. Before yeah. you cut to the shot of them, you already know what's going to be there. And it's also just kind of like one of those things where, and I think Spike Lee's brought this up, but it's very true that, at least I remember from being in high school and things like that, that there was always a song that defined your summer in some way. It oh yeah, like,
1: that's actually, that's, that's a real thing. I mean, a real, in the music industry, the summer song is a real concept. Yeah, this idea the song of the summer.
0: that... You know, there is a song that you will you just will hear everywhere and it comes to define your memories of whatever that summer was. Like when I think of certain things, I associate music with them. So I think it kind of it works that way as well. It's another one of these things where we when you had mentioned the iPod Rahim thing, I had said that there's a lot of things in this movie that I wish still
1: existed now. And big boomboxes is one of them. Yeah,
0: well, I I miss that because I think that that...
1: You would be a Radio (laughs) Bentanti Right, exactly. (laughs) Walking around Columbus with a big uh, I wonder what my song would be. Whatever this year's, that Iggy, what's her name, Iggy?
0: Iggy Azalea or whatever?
1: Yeah, Fancy, that's the the song of the summer this year, I believe. So that's what you'd be blaring right now? Walking around doing that?
0: But yeah, but I miss the, like, I never grew, I didn't really grow up in a big city or anything like that. Uh, I live, I grew up in sort of a small town, but it wasn't too small to where the, it was still divided into neighborhoods and things like that. Yeah. And I do remember there kind of always being this sense in the, it wasn't like a block or anything like that. It was more of a, sub, not the suburbs, but more of a suburban neighborhood than this in the film that, you know you just would walk to people's house and there'd be people that you would see every day doing something. There are lots of people that I remember now. I mean, like a guy that I would just see walking with a walking stick every day when I would leave my house. And then five hours later, I'd be somewhere else in town and I'd see that guy walking still. I mean, he just spent his days walking all the time. So that sense of kind of a even if you're not like directly interacting with someone, you're kind of aware of who they are and they're aware of who, who you are and a, a sense of community. I don't think that that exists anymore. I know it doesn't yeah. exist where I grew up. And it was kind of like you were saying when everything's becoming homogenized. The movie functions kind of as a, a strange time capsule of almost another world that I'm sure if I was born in 2001 or something – I'd watch this movie and I'd think this movie was nuts like that. How could you, how could this have ever been the way life was where everybody knew everyone and everybody ate at the same pizza pizzeria and everything like that. It's just that sense of we're kind of like all in this together thing just doesn't seem to really exist anymore.
1: Right. Yeah.
0: Now I want to ask cause it's, a, cause it's an iconic thing. Uh, okay best opening credits of all time
1: uh yeah i mean they're fun um
0: they're near the top right they're they're in the mix
1: they're definitely definitely in the top i mean it's the same opening as bye bye birdie um,
0: but bye 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 birdie doesn't have rosie perez throwing punches
1: no but it has um And uh, and margaret but um i i thought the editing in the opening was really fantastic
0: with her in silhouette and the jump cuts.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it was very, very well done. And um, I actually kind of wish more movies had kind of, like, stylized opening credits like that. Yeah, oh, yeah, I miss that completely. Very few films have stylized opening credits. I think we've uh, hit the end of Do the Right Thing. I'm sure there's lots more you could talk about. Neither one of us have doctorates in, like, sociology or... Race relations or anything of those of that, so we're not really the best people to talk about the finer details and the and things like that.
0: But I don't think you have to either. I think you can totally enjoy this movie and right. get no, its I message it, without it, having to overly analyze it.
1: And um, I think if you watch the film with an open mind, mm-hmm. in the regard of, um, I think Spike Lee's letting it up is is ultimately letting the audience decide about what happened or at least think about what happened. That um, I think if you watch it with an open mind and not just instantly go in thinking that Spike Lee is a militant, I think you'll get a lot more out of it. I think people that don't like the movie, I think they're going in. I think not people like, that think like that
0: Spike Lee is a militant probably have never actually watched a Spike Lee movie.
1: That's that's true, but they've I'm, seen but him it, on
0: Anderson Cooper and they've defined what who yeah, he is. on Yeah, that's
1: pro- that's probably true, but I think there are people that have gone into this film and probably his other a lot of his other films going in. Thinking that he's a militant and automatically would discredit everything that happens in the film, so I do think it's important to see it with an with an open mind. And I don't think he, he's like the only one. People are like that with. I think uh, a lot of people are like that with uh, films dealing with homosexuality. Mm-hmm. Who do that. Do the same thing.
0: Yeah, which I don't get it. Yeah. Were you at all familiar, like familiar with any like the? political references it makes to like the michael stewart thing or the eleanor bumpers you know i didn't
1: know the michael stewart thing but um the like the tania was told the truth telling the truth yeah i knew what that was
0: what'd you think about that not not i guess what he's saying i just that he peppers (laughs) the movie with these very well
1: i think it's i think it's good that he peppers movie because he should pepper the movie with things like that Mm -hmm. because i do think that would be within that community Mm -hmm. now in regard to her telling the truth all the evidence goes to she wasn't telling the truth, but that's okay.
0: I, I think he said that he's not necessarily, I don't know that Spike Lee
1: is making the statement that she was telling the truth.
0: Right. I don't know that he's definitively
1: saying that, I think. But I do think that would have been something that would have been in that neighborhood, or a neighborhood like that. And
0: at this time, too, I mean, that was, I think that happened in 87, and then this comes out yeah, in Yeah, yeah, so. you know, I
1: think, you know, like, we're so far removed from it now, I think you can kind of, a lot of people have an easier time taking away like say how she was presented in the media with just the actual facts and the evidence Mm -hmm. can kind of step back and maybe not let um their emotions take over i do think things like that happen a lot not just with you know black and white but with all kinds of things where people let their emotions kind of blind them to evidence so i'm not necessarily saying that uh I'm not holding that against the film, even if that is what Spike Lee was saying at the time. Right. You know, I wouldn't hold that against the film because it was so it it had it had just happened. (laughs) So I can see how emotions can run away with you.
0: Oh, and I love the montage of the the can't stand it heat montage mm-hmm. and you get the newspapers. I always think that's hilarious oh, yeah. with the one that says baked apple and there's like a literal baked apple on the front page. I always <laughs> think that's really funny. Uh, How many Jive turkeys will you give this?
1: What? I actually had like a hard time deciding how many stars I wanted to give it on Letterboxd and since stars and turkeys are kind of similar. I'm not for certain, you know, I'm not for certain because I mean, I ultimately gave it four and a half stars and I'll give it four and a half turkeys. Okay, because I do think on repeated viewings, like I said earlier, it's a film that I can I think can withstand and probably gets better on repeated viewings
0: is there was there anything you didn't like?
1: no, but at the same time when I was watching it, I didn't go oh, this is one of my favorite movies right, and that's kind of where I go. well, I can't give it five stars in that regard or five turkeys in that regard, but it's definitely better than like my thought is. I always, this is how I think about certain things when it comes to stars and turkeys. If it was on a one to four basis, if I gave this movie just four jive turkeys or four stars, if it was on a one to four basis, that means it's a three star movie. And this is a far, far better than a three star movie. It's far better than just a good movie. But at the same time, when I'm just using my thing of like, oh, is this one of my favorite movies or is this something that I want to watch over and over again? Probably not. So I, I can't give it necessarily the five. And so Four and a Half is just in between. It's like, I recognize it is a really great movie. It's just not one of my favorite movies.
0: Mm -hmm. I'm giving it five Jive Turkeys, because it is one of my favorite movies.
1: And I know that I probably, like, in that regard, I probably, like, underrated it. Because I know there are some movies that, upon seeing, like, I gave her five stars when I first saw it, but I'm positive I overrated that movie. I
0: am too. (laughs) That you overrated. I, still think I think I overrated movie. it even. I still, I still think, think
1: it's a good movie. I still think it's a good movie, but it's not a five-star movie at all. And this is far better than that.
0: Well, I think sometimes you just have, you know, a uh, immediate reaction to something. and Yeah,
1: you have those immediate reactions to something.
0: I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think no, no, no. having such a strong reaction on a first-time viewing to something, is there's value in that, even if it doesn't hold up over time.
1: Yeah, well, like a good a good example of that is um, when I told you I saw Guardians of the Galaxy and I was like, oh, it's probably like a three and a half star movie. It's not. It's a three star movie at best. And even when I'm just saying, oh, yeah, it's a fine movie, I was still overrating it at that point. <laughs> now, I, I didn't cry at the end to Do the Right Thing. I didn't cry at its perfection.
0: <laughs> but you did at the end of it's Guardians of the Galaxy, just in its perfection. Oh, yeah,
1: I did. Yes, yes.
0: You know, that remind, I, it reminds me, bringing up a comic book movie, I, I think we I had said something to you about this before we started, in that there are times where it reminds me of like the 60s Batman show, or mm-hmm. kind of embodies certain like comic book aesthetics of this time period. It's also interesting to note that this came out at the same time as Batman 1989.
1: Batman. It also should be noted that Black Panther's reference throughout the film, mm-hmm. <laughs> and I don't mean the Black Panther Party, but the comic book character Black Panther.
0: Does this make you at all want to see a Spike Lee superhero film?
1: Yeah. If nothing else, just because it'd be different.
0: I just think think he would recognize that it doesn't need to be something that... It would be the antithesis, I think, of what most superhero movies
1: are. Well, I think you said that your favorite... In the past, I think I read where your favorite comic book movie was Danger Diabolic. So is Spike Lee, do you think he's a Mario Bava fan? I don't know. I mean the way he was using the colors in this film, though.
0: Yeah, no, it's it would be interesting to to ask Spike Lee if he is familiar with Mario Bava.
1: Yeah, and I do think more more directors are directly influenced by him than I think you kind of would guess. Like I know, like Quentin Tarantino, *Strangers is Pulp Fiction* was very influenced by Black Sabbath. Oh, and well, the, the antho- structure the of it, yeah. yeah, the structurally that's. Where he got the structure was from Black Sabbath, which I actually didn't know that. I just recently read that, mm. so I never would have put two and two together with that, because they're so different on what they're about.
0: But I think D- Danger Diabolic, I guess, to defend that
1: <laughs> statement. You don't have to defend it. I think it's, I was going to say, I think that's a five-star movie. I think that's probably, for me, it's probably behind Superman the movie of the best comic book movies, because, you know, I love Superman the movie. Di-
0: Danger Diabolic one. Uh, number two, Superman 3.
1: <laughs> okay, wait a minute. Do that again?
0: Danger Diabolic number one. Number okay. two, Superman 3.
1: Oh, okay. You love that Lana Lang shows up in that movie.
0: Yeah, I think it's... I don't know. Like, you want you we, we mentioned Jacques, Jacques Tati on mm. the last episode. Like, Superman 3 is, to me, is very much inspired by, like, Richard Lester's love of that style of comic. Yeah in another
1: tool <laughs> she was she was she was a looker at that time
0: but i guess when i say that i think danger Diabolic is the best comic book film adaptation i'm saying it marries the tone of what comic books i think at the essence are but it, yeah, it no, but yeah. i think people and i know this because just even from watching extras and the beastie boys parodying I think people associate it with a certain era of campy kitsch that it is not. I think it is far more genuine than those things are. And I think the filmmaking is just deceptively.
1: I don't think the the Beastie Boys are making fun of it. I think they're like legitimate fans of it. I
0: think they are too. But when I listen to them talk about it, they don't treat it with the, like it's a different kind of affection. It's like the affection that most people have about like the sixties Batman show or something like, Whereas I, I think Mario Bava's actual filmmaking is really, really sophisticated. It's just mm-hmm. because tonally it's kind of, a, kind of a goofy movie, I guess. It, people kind of – it becomes a, – a, they become oblivious to it because it's so subtle in its own ways. But there are frames they in do, that it. film that are absolutely incredible.
1: Yeah, and you know, I do like the Mystery Science Two Thousand show, but I do find it very odd that they did that movie on. Oh yeah, that actually
0: really annoys me.
1: I can't, I don't understand how, I mean, it is a legitimate good film. There's like no way around that. Like, there's some films that they do on, on that show that I do like, and I kind of think, well, I mean, it is kind of a good movie. But I think you can still find stuff, you know, to lay up at, whatever. Have they done other that,
0: Mario Bava movies?
1: Not ones that he that had actually had his name on,
0: because I feel like there are other films that you could, especially like in his his like later horror output, where I would be more yeah. understanding of it. I do think with Mario Baba if you if you love Mario Baba, I think you're maybe a little biased in forgiving him of some mm-hmm. of his later films, like I don't think Hatchet for the Honeymoon is like a good movie. Oh really? Yeah, I don't like it. I find it very, very dull. And I mean, there are interesting, like, really strange things about it, but
1: it's yeah, that's a weird movie.
0: But uh, I don't think there's anything wrong with being forgiving to Mario Bava. Like, I don't think enough people are anyway. I just wondered if if that's the only Mario Bava movie that they've done. (laughs) Yeah, that's the only one. For me, arguably, that's his best film beside Black Sunday. So I don't.
1: I mean they they've done stuff like um like Hercules which he didn't direct, but he definitely worked on enough. Mm-hmm. You know, cinematography, special effects, things like that, where he probably hit some sort of hand and kind of did some of the direction of it. But I also think the Pebbles aren't really all that necessarily that bad. But I think um, they do a lot of Corman films on there. and um,
0: That he directed himself? Or... That he
1: directed himself, yeah. And, um, I mean, he direct- Roger Corman directed a million movies during his, like, 15 years where he actually was a director and they really, it's not like they're doing the best Corman films, because they're really not. But they always do kind of make reference that Corman's a bad director, and like I've said to you, you can't make as many good films as Roger Corman has, and be a bad director. But I mean, you look at his filmography, and yeah, he's got movies that aren't very good, that are pretty bad, really. But he also directed so many goddamn movies.
0: And he's such a nice guy. How could you ever say a bad thing about him?
1: But, I mean, if you eliminate... I know this is going to sound stupid, but if you eliminate just his bad... If if you eliminate his bad films and you just concentrate on the ones that he made that are good, you would actually think that this guy has an amazing filmography. But that has always kind of bothered me about... On that is... Yeah, I know what you're saying. They can't seem to differentiate between Corman just making, like, a movie over the weekend, just because he had some (laughs) money left over. And the guy that directed mask of the red death
0: well also how many films is roger corman direct credited as the director of that he probably didn't direct the entirety of you know what i mean
1: well no that's that's definitely true because i mean um
0: he he gave a lot of opportunities to people yeah
1: i mean the terror is definitely one i mean he's credited as direct director but the film was directed by francis ford coppola monty hellman jack hill and jack nicholson (laughs) right like you have those four guys. And I also don't think The Terror is as bad as a lot of people think it is. No, I actually I... think The Terror is kind of interesting. I mean, it doesn't make any sense, but I think that's part of its charm, really. So, you know, uh, you know, Roger Ebert was a big Do the Right Thing fan. So it was Gene Siskel. Mm-hmm. I was looking at their top ten best films of the decade list. Both of them have Do the Right Thing on it. Uh, Siskel has it at number six of the decade. He is behind. Now, tell me what you think of these, okay? All right. Are you ready? Yeah. Are you ready? Yep. Number, okay, he has it at number six. So he has it above number ten, Kegamusha, nine, Sid and Nancy, eight, Moonlighting, which I'm assuming is the television series, and seven, <laughs> Once Upon a, seven ones upon Time in America. Okay, okay so that's what he has below, Do the Right Thing. Above, Do the Right Thing, he has Who Framed Director Rabbit, My Dinner with Andre, the right, uh, the right Stuff, Showa, and Raging Bull.
0: Well, I would say that one and two are fine mm-hmm. three yeah. through five should not even be in the, in the list i don't know I don't... Well,
1: very much right but i think it's a pretty great film but okay
0: a best of a decade list isn't it kind of like these are the most important films that were made yeah in I, I mean
1: i agree with i agree with your placing of it i think raging bull and Shoah are fine above it mm-hmm. but i would place it at three with those films okay raj has it at number four so below it he has at number 10 house of games nine *Platoon*. Eight, Mississippi Burning, which, who knows? Seven, Ran. Six, Raiders of Lost Ark. Five, My Dinner with Andre. Okay, then we have four, Do the Right Thing. Now, his, above it, he has three, E.T., the extraterrestrial. Two, The Right Stuff. And one, Raging Bull.
0: I would say, in that case, it should be two.
1: Yeah. Now, Ebert wouldn't put show on his list because he says that movies beyond being reviewed and ranked that the movies it's like of a higher standard to even critique it which i think is stupid <laughs> but that's his that's was his feeling on show which i thought he was just being an asshole to gene siskel
0: probably or he just want didn't want to he wanted all of his 10 spots and he thought oh yeah. here's how i'll get my 10 spots and be able to say show well he cool.
1: originated it in 1985 because Gene Siskel has Showa as his number one film of the year in 1985, and Ebert said that he excluded Showa from the list not because he thought of ten films that were better, but because he felt it was in a class by itself, and it wouldn't be appropriate to rank Ordinary Movies against it. I think he just wanted to put The Color Purple at number one, to be honest with you. Yeah,
0: but to his defense, you kind of do that a little bit.
1: Well, I think certain films are harder to rate.
0: Well, maybe because... he felt that way about Showa.
1: I think he just wanted to put the color purple at number 1 and then want I have people saying how could he how could he put not put showa at number 1 to be honest with you. Although before before his death Roger Ebert did write a thing where he kind of overpraised the where he did say he overpraised the color purple and it's really not that great of a movie. Although he still put it on his greatest movies list. That is
0: one thing. I know we we don't we never really talked about Roger Ebert on the show passing or anything like that, yeah. but that is one thing about I was I'm not like uh I'm not an Ebert file or whatever. Whatever you want to call it. Neither am I. I mean, I liked
1: Roger Ebert as a person. I did
0: too, and one of the biggest things that I respected about him was the fact that he often would write reevaluate films that he had previously yes. praised. I I think I said before, there is a excellent reevaluation of the graduate that he wrote.
1: Yeah, where he was like, I don't know what I was thinking. The movies are good. And
0: I feel like oh, he opened his eyes? That sense of humility, I don't know that there are really very many critics. There aren't a lot did. of people like
1: that, yeah. And, but I believe Gene Siskel did the same thing. Yeah. I will say about Roger Ebert that I will say is commendable, other than just that he would reevaluate films, is he would stick by his guns no matter how ridiculous it may be. Mm-hmm.
0: And he was also like a great champion of movies that he felt deserved to be recognized that weren't.
1: I like that he was a big Russ Meyer supporter and that he and Russ Meyer became really good friends and worked a lot together. I like that, that he saw the value in Russ Meyer's work early on before other people started doing it. He saw the value in it. I think sometimes he was a contradiction in his love of films like Last House on the Left and yet his complete hatred of I Spit on Your Grave, which I find odd that you could love one and hate the other so much.
0: I wasn't aware of that. I don't hate either film. But I don't Mm -hmm. like either film. And I might even say that I'm more disturbed by Last House on the Left. Last
1: House on the Left. I think I Spill Your Grave actually handles everything a little bit better.
0: Well, but that, you know, it's because Wes Craven sucks.
1: (laughs) Well, yeah, Wes Craven's a terrible director. Now, I agree with him. Dawn of the Dead is a great film. But that's the only one in the series he liked. And he was offended by the other two. I find that odd. So he has a lot of contradictions in that regard. But I do also think that's part of him where he sees something and he'll stick to his guns no matter how ridiculous it is. Mm-hmm. Like his saying that Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome is a much better film than The Road Warrior, which is what? insane to believe that. I didn't know that. that. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, so like Roger Ebert stuck to his guns and the whole Garfield thing where he gave it three stars. Good for him. <laughs> yeah, I mean, good. Yeah, People kind of people kind of got on him about it and he kind of stuck with it. So, you know, good for him.
0: It makes me happy to know that Roger Ebert reevaluated the graduate but didn't Garfield it really does that uh, that makes me like Roger Ebert more because yeah. Garfield is probably a better movie than the graduate <laughs> yeah i i I'm not kidding either I probably a like Garfield more, likely, more than a much
1: more likable character, yeah, and
0: I probably would like I've never seen Garfield, but I probably would like it more than I liked the Graduate. So yeah
1: I't know. In film, a lot, especially with film criticism, you do get the revaluation, reevaluation of movies that were like crapped upon when they came out. Mm-hmm. You do get that, but you very rarely get the revaluation of a film that was praised when it came out. You, you there are some examples of it, but not a lot.
0: Andy, what are we looking at next episode?
1: Well, next episode, we're finally going to take a look at Todd Haynes' 1995 horror film *Safe*, starring mm-hmm. Julianne Moore. I think it's safe. It's it's safe to say that will that will be our next episode.
0: It's safe to say that on episode seventy-seven, we will have done the right thing.
1: I mean, I like to think that we did the right thing for this episode by doing do the right thing, because I think it would have been a little too safe for us to do safe.
0: But it would have been quite the trip to have done safe That's, before yeah. doing do the right thing.
1: Yeah. well, yeah. Yeah. That is true. <laughs>
0: I mean, I let's I not get our I head could... against the wall or anything. No, this.
1: no. I know, I wish I hit the full list. So I, could have done, I could do more as well.
0: So you can listen to Annie on the Stephen and Andy Meet Batman podcast. Andy and I can also be found on Letterboxd, where we encourage you to follow us if you have an account. FilmJive can be reached at filmjive.wordpress.com, Facebook, Stitcher Radio, and iTunes and send all of your thoughts and feedback to filmjive at gmail.com, and we'll read them on the next episode. So, thank you for listening to the Film Jive podcast. Please tune in to the next episode, and until next time, keep on jiving.